Open, please, to Ezekiel in chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36. I want to begin reading with, beginning with verse 16. Ezekiel 36, 16. Ezekiel 36, 16. Hear the word of God. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds, their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols with which they had defiled it. I scattered them among the nations and they were dispersed through the countries. In accordance with their ways and their deeds, I judged them. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned, profaned my holy name. In that people said of them, These are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Is It, not, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, and I will, put within, I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. And I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruits of the tree and the increase of the field abundant, that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, On the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places to be rebuilt. The land that was desolate shall be tilled instead of being the desolation that it was in the sight of all who passed by. And they will say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. And the waste and desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. Thus says the Lord God. This also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them, to increase their people like a flock, like the flock for sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem during her appointed feasts, so that the waste cities be filled with flocks of people. Then they will know that I am the Lord. On bad weather days, I often think of the story that an old pastor friend of mine told me, told the story of a pastor in a small farming community in Vermont and there was a huge snow and only one person, one farmer showed up for church that morning and 
pastor was a little uneasy about what to do exactly, so he went to the farmer and said, I don't know if I should preach to you or not. And the old farmer said, well, when I call my cows, and only one comes, I feed them. <laughs> so the pastor went and preached for about an hour and a half. After the service, the farmer came up to him and said, when I call my cows and only one come, I don't give him the whole load. <laughs> but I am, because this is one of those passages for which I really wish I had a weekend retreat, because there's a great deal to be said, because there's a great deal here, but yet it's good to hear it, it's good to see it in one sitting, it's good to see it in one time, in one place, so you can sort of take it all in. And so that's what I want to do. I want to go quickly. Uh, much of this is, is summary because we've been through some of this stuff before, probably all of this stuff before. But I, I want you to see the big picture, really, of the work of Christ, the big picture of the gospel. And so in order for me to do that, let me kind of lay out the flow. Let me lay out where I'm headed so you'll be able to hopefully follow this through because it's going to come fast and uh, furious. It's rather like a water hydrant kind of sermon where you just open up a hydrant, stick your mouth on, and hold on for dear life. But what we're going to see here first is that everything that God does, he does to vindicate his name. Everything that God does, he does for the honor and glory of himself. Okay, I want you to see that first. Secondly, we're going to see that what he's going to do for the honor of his name is bring the exiles back. But thirdly, what we're going to see is when he brings this whole promise of bringing the exiles back is really bigger than even that. Because it's going to end up in a place that resembles the Garden of Eden. And what that all will entail, fourthly, is that there will be a very personal, in the lives of people, cleansing that will take place. And there will be a transformation in people's lives because they'll receive a new heart and a new spirit. He'll take out hearts of stone that are resistant, put in hearts of flesh that are soft and, and, and beating. And not only that, he will put the very Spirit of God within them so that people will be able to walk in God's ways and obey God. And that will, in fact, lead to, end up in this great paradise, something that resembles the Garden of Eden. And not only that, it's going to be a situation not for the few, but for the many. There will be a great multitude that will assemble in this place. Okay? That's where we're headed. Now, to begin, there's a nice summary uh, to, to sort of set all of this up in verses 16 through 19. And there we find in those verses of Ezekiel 36, we find in those verses, we find this summary that says that Jerusalem, that point ancient Israel, Jerusalem was unclean, impure before God. And certainly she was, her priests were impure, the prophets, the kings, the people lived lives of disobedience before God, making them unclean. And cleanness was very significant uh, to God because in order to live in his presence, one must be clean, one must be pure like him in order to live in his presence and he live among people. In fact, the whole culture of ancient Israel was set up to have laws that dealt with cleanliness, not so much for the purpose of hygiene, but for the purpose of teaching them something about God and their relationship to God. Because some of these laws seem very arbitrary to us. In fact, all of them were suspended after Jesus came. 
So they weren't permanent in the lives of people, but, but if one touched blood, you were unclean. You could only eat of certain animals because some animals were clean and some animals were unclean. Um, if you had mildew in your house, I won't take a show of hands, if you had mildew in your house, you were unclean. And so if you're going to be cleansed, then you would have to go through various rituals, one of which would be sprinkling water, either on yourself or on, on your tent or whatever, and so that you could become clean. And God says, listen, if you're going to live with me, you need to be clean. So I'm going to teach you about that. In fact, most significantly on the Day of Atonement, the most important day probably in the whole year for ancient Israel, the, the priest who would represent the people had to be clean before God. And so he would have to bathe and put on fresh, new, clean, white clothes in order to stand in the presence of God. And that would shout to everyone that God is righteous, God is holy, God is pure, and to be in his presence, so too must you be. So, that was that. And he said, you've been unclean. And he told them all along, even from the days of Moses, if you live like that, and you're not pure and clean before me, then I will scatter you among the nations. Now notice in verse 20, though, what happens. When he scatters them among the nations, then his holy name is profaned, Ezekiel says. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, that is, when they were scattered into the nations, whenever they came, they profaned my holy name, in that people said of them, these are the people of God, and yet they go out of his land. If you'll turn back to verse 2, this is sort of what they were saying. In verse 2 it says, Thus says the Lord God, because the enemy said of you, Ah, and the ancient heights have become our possession. Meaning, those who conquered the Israelites said, Now this land is ours. Now this people is ours. Their God couldn't protect them from us. We're stronger than he. And thus the name of God was profaned. He couldn't take care of his people. He wasn't worthy of their worship. He didn't incite in them fear and respect. And so now they were scattered. And so the people were wondering about God. He must not be very strong. He must not be very very glorious to have a people who would disobey him like this and enable us to just walk in and take over. But of course, what they should have done, these nations who captured the Israelites, what they should have done was to bow before God and say, God, it's only by your hand that we've been able to be successful here. It's only by your hand that we've been able to go in here and, 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 and capture your people. But they didn't do that. In their pride, they said, Ah, we're stronger than God. So verse 7, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I swear that the nations that are around you shall themselves suffer reproach. That is, he's going to come against the nations. But then notice next what he says about Israel, verse 8. He says, But you, O mountains of Israel, shall shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit to my people, for they will soon come home. For behold, I am for you, and I will turn to you, and you shall be tilled and sown. So he's speaking to the mountains, and he's saying, Hang on, the people are going to come back, and you're going to have, you're going to have crops again, mountains. Verse 10, And I will multiply my people on you and the whole house of Israel, all of it. The city shall be inhabited and the waste places rebuilt. And I will multiply on you man and beast, and they shall multiply and be fruitful. And I will cause you to be inhabited as in your former times. And then notice this sentence, part of sentence. And he says, and I will do more good to you than ever before. Is that amazing? So I'm going to take all of these people that have been against me, and all of these people that have been unclean, and I'm going to bring them back, and I'm going to do more good to them than I ever have before. 
And then this next sentence is all throughout, that's all throughout Ezekiel, and I've been reading it now for months. I haven't said anything about it. Just been reading it, reading it. The next sentence, then you will know that I am the Lord. He's more explicit in verse 22. He says, therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Now, that's this first point I want to make. And that is that what God does, he does to vindicate or to honor or bring glory to his name. That is, everything that God does revolves around him. Now that may sound odd to you. Worse, it may sound egotistical. Worse, it may sound kind of babyish. I mean, why is God so concerned about his name, you know? Hasn't he heard, you know, sticks and stones can break my bones, but names can never hurt me? I mean, what's, what, what, what's with God? And isn't this rather egotistical that, that, that everything that he would do would be in concern for how he looks? When I was a kid, there was one of the other little kids playing with us, and they sort of were being bossy that day. We would oftentimes turn to that kid and say, Who made you God? Because implicitly, we knew that God's the only one who gets to have everything revolve around himself. We don't. And we don't because we're not God. But God does because he is God. You see, we don't get to have everything revolve around ourselves. That's selfishness and arrogance and pride. And we don't get to do that because we're the same, you and me. And I don't get to be uppity on you, and you don't get to be uppity on me. We're just kind of all the same. Life doesn't get to revolve around me, I've learned. And <laughs> life doesn't get to revolve around you. You've learned. I mean, it just doesn't work that way. Nor should it. But life should revolve around God. Who else should he revolve his thinking, his speaking, his doing around other than him? If he revolved it around something other than him, he would be an idolater. Because idolatry is when you set up someone, something, that is your God. And if it's your God, it means it defines your life and then directs your life and you delight in it. And God is God and therefore he should define everything in accordance with himself. And he then should direct everything in accordance with himself. And he should take great delight in what he does. Else, he would be sinning. And so everything that God does revolves around him. Everything does. We're to live for his glory. He's to live for his glory. We're to delight in him. He's to delight in him. And he says, I will vindicate my holiness. That's righteousness. Righteousness really is an unwavering zeal for the glory of God. And so God is righteous because he has an unwavering zeal for his own glory. And when we're living righteously, then we would be having an unwavering zeal for the glory of God too. And so everything that God does, he does for the sake of his whole name. Hang on to that. 
I know it's a bit of a heavy concept to start a sermon, but it's me. Um, hang on to that, because it's going to be important in a minute. Well, it's important all the time, but I'll bring it back into the sermon in a minute. Or ten. Um, everything God does, he does for the sake of his name. Now, we've been reading this statement along as we've been going through Ezekiel, primarily in the context of judgment. Primarily, we've been reading it thus far, where God says, I'm going to destroy Jerusalem. Then they will know that I am their God, or I'm the Lord. And he said, then I'm going to destroy the Edomites. Then they'll know that I am the Lord. I'm going to destroy this group. Then they'll know that I am the Lord. And that's true, because as God, he has every right to judge. And when he's been offended, he has every right to judge. And that proves, that shows that he really is God. He will not be mocked. But he's going to show that he's the Lord here a bit differently. He's going to show that he's the Lord here by taking a group of people who've rebelled against him, who've dishonored him, who've profaned his name, and he's going to restore them and do them good. Now that's amazing. You see, we understand, or at least should, logically we understand judgment. That is, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth makes sense to us. Actually, for us, if someone takes our eyes, we want to take their head. Or if someone takes our tooth, we want to take their life. So it's even unjust at that point. But an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, justice, that makes sense. If God does that, that makes sense. But if God were going to do that, and that's the only way he was going to display his glory, he could have done that all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. He could, after Adam sinned, just said, okay, I set this up for human beings, and they sinned against me, and so I'm going to destroy them. But he doesn't. He makes a promise that he's going to save. Because he's worthy to have a people who worship him and praise him. And you see, what's amazing about this majesty of God is his utter goodness and his mercy and his grace. The Apostle Paul, when he writes about Jesus, speaks to that. You don't need to turn to this. But in Romans chapter 5, Paul speaks to it, this amazing love of God. He writes, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely dare die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's what's amazing. I'm not amazed by the fact that God would judge me and condemn me a sinner. What amazes me is that in my rebellion against him, he would save me. Now God says, when this happens, people are going to realize there is none like me. Nobody would do this. Never on the face of the earth would a God take a people who's rebelled against him and who's profaned his name. Never have they seen a God be good to them and to bless them. And I'm going to do that. I'm going to bring you back. I'm, I'm going to do more good to you than I've ever done before, than you could ever have imagined. And so he's promising them to bring back the exiles. But what we're reading here in Ezekiel is bigger than that. It isn't just that. I mean, it's that. They will come back. But, but it's bigger than that. Because he goes on to, to speak in very personal and, and, and very transforming, very revivalistic kinds of terms. Because first of all, he says, I'm going to cleanse you. Now you see, that was huge for them. Cleanse us? 
I'm going to sprinkle water and cleanse you. Before, all kinds of things were cleansed. People were cleansed. But, but it was just sort of a, this, this, this ceremonial thing to show that we needed to be cleansed. But this gets at the fact that, that a cleansing is going to happen and it appears to be permanent. And it appears to be internal because he says, I'm going to give you a new heart and a new spirit. I'm going to take out your heart of stone that's resistant and rebellious. And I'm going to put in a heart that's responsive and repentant. So I'm going to take out your heart of flesh and your heart of stone. I'm going to put in a heart of flesh. I'm going to give you a new heart and a new spirit. This, this inner transformation is going to take place. Jeremiah puts it like this. He says, God says, I'm going to write my law upon your heart. So that my law isn't going to be something foreign to you. It isn't going to be something that you read and go, oh, yuck. It's going to be something that's right there on your heart. And you're going to hear my law with your ears and embrace it with your heart because that's not who you are. Your whole disposition has changed. It's not going to be a rebelliousness against me, but your whole disposition has changed and you will embrace me and follow me. And to enable you to do that, I'm going to put my spirits within you. Now they knew of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit sustained life and they understood that. And the Holy Spirit worked in them and among them and and even brought them new life. So it's the same Holy Spirit. But now the degree to which they will have the Holy Spirit seems to be greater. And he says, he'll be right within you, enabling you to follow me, enabling you to obey my statutes. More than that, the word is cause you to obey my statutes. In other words, you've been getting into trouble because you've been rebellious. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to cleanse you, forgive your sins. And then I'm going to to give you a new heart, a new spirit, a whole new inclination, a whole new personality of life towards me. And then I'm going to give you my spirit that will enable you to walk in my ways. And then he said, this is going to be great. It's going to be like Eden, verse 35. And they will say this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. We've read about this in Ezekiel from time to time. Thus far he's called it the covenant of peace where there will be a great living together with animals and people and everybody together and and great abundance of crops and everything will be at peace and everything will be wonderful. And he says, yes, it will be like Eden. And then he not only says that, but notice in verse 37, he says, thus says the Lord God, This also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them, to increase their people like a flock, like the flock for sacrifices, like the flock in Jerusalem during her appointed feasts. So shall the waste cities be filled with flocks of people. Then they will know that I am the Lord. He says, you'll know because there'll be so many. And they would envision at this moment in time what Jerusalem would have looked like on the great days of the feasts, Passover and so forth. Because in those days, the streets were filled, jam-packed, throngs of people and, 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 and animals come for sacrifice. It would be a mess. It wasn't like a big eight-lane highway. It was like a little street. And all these people that weren't usually there because people would come to Jerusalem on those great feast days. And all those people that weren't usually there would be there walking in the streets with their lambs going up to take them to the temple to be slaughtered. There would just be countless people there. And he says, that's what it's going to be like. It's going to be like cleansing new heart and spirit towards me, my spirit within you, enabling you to walk in your way. It's going to be like Eden. It's going to be throngs of people. All over. Now how is this going to come about? Well, it's coming about. And it's coming about, of course, because of Jesus. Now, why did Jesus come? 
You can say he came to die on the cross for my sins. Yes. He came to save his people from their sins. Yes. He came because he loves. Yes. But what was before all of that? What did he desire to do? For instance, John chapter 12 and verse 27. It's right before crucifixion time. Jesus is in Jerusalem. Verse 27, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus came that his Father's name would be glorified. Well, what is true of everything? Everything is to vindicate God's name. Everything is to glorify his name. And so Jesus comes to glorify his name as Jesus is praying his prayer in John chapter 17, verse 4. Here's what he says to his father. He said, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had before the world existed. Jesus came so that his father would be glorified, so that he would be glorified with the glory that he had before He came, that is, that God might be glorified. That's why he came. And so God says in Ezekiel 36, he says, I'm going to vindicate my name. I'm going to vindicate my holy name by doing something. So Jesus comes on the scene with that very purpose, to glorify the profaned name of God, to lift it up, to vindicate it, to say God is great. And so how is he going to do that? By cleansing The blood of Jesus cleanses us from our sins. In fact, when Peter was preaching in Acts chapter 15, or not preaching, he was at the the, um, Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, and he's explaining what happened to the uh, Gentiles who came to faith. In Acts chapter 15 and verse 8, we read of Peter who said, And God who knows the heart bore witness to them, that is, these Gentiles, by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us, And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. And you see, when they heard this, bells and whistles should have been going off in their heads. Cleansing? Cleansing? We've heard about cleansing. Ezekiel talked about cleansing. Ezekiel talked about about a cleansing that would take place, that would lead us into a place like the Garden of Eden. This cleansing is here. Of course, we know these passages. Uh, I'll just give you one more. 1 John, uh, in chapter 1. Verse 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's a cleansing that comes. Why don't we need all these food laws anymore and all those purification laws and all of that? Because Jesus cleanses it all. We don't need that object lesson anymore. It's simply that Jesus is the cleanser. He cleanses it all. He makes it all clean. Sin stains us, dirties us. And Jesus cleanses us. And not only that, Jesus speaks of this whole transformation of life. When he was talking to Nicodemus, you remember, that we have in John in chapter 3, Jesus speaks of this new heart and this new spirit. For instance, in John 3 and verse 5, Jesus answered Nicodemus' question, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water 
and the spirit, he cannot enter, enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. He says, listen, again, bells and whistles. Water? Spirit? Oh, there was a cleansing, a sprinkling with water. Figuratively, Ezekiel talked about. And now Jesus comes on the scene. that There is going to be this new birth that's going to come about by the Holy Spirit. A new heart, a new spirit. And Paul speaks about it very forthrightly in a verse that, that um, trust you know. In Second Corinthians in chapter 5, verse 17, Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is Ezekiel kind of language. New heart, new spirit, heart of stone out, heart of flesh in, new creation. Paul, when he writes to the church in Colossae, says, you're a new self now. There's been a radical change with the old self. The old self is over there. The new self is over here. There's a difference, and that's who you now are. And all of this by Jesus. Again, bells and whistles. This is what Ezekiel talked about. And then Jesus, of course, said, Listen, on the night that he was betrayed, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And he's going to be among you. And he's going to be in you. And we know the work of the Spirit to transform and to enable us to, to, to show forth the character of Christ as the fruit of the Spirit develops in us. We're, we're caused, if you will, by, by now the very disposition of our hearts and by the work of the Holy Spirit. We're caused to walk in the ways of God. Things are different. We now embrace the things of God as opposed to rebel against them. All this, you see, is what Ezekiel was talking about. And you say, well, it hasn't led to the Garden of Eden yet. No, it hasn't, but it will. Turn to Revelation chapter 22. Hang with me, please. Revelation chapter 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river. I'll give you a minute, come on. Got it? Okay. Verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city also. On either side of the river, the tree of life. Now where's that? The tree of life. You remember the good old tree of life? That's what Adam and Eve couldn't eat of in this sinful, uncleansed existence. And so, God says, no, no, you're cleansed. You have a new heart and a new spirit. My spirit lives within you. You're walking in my ways. Come now to the tree of life and eat. The tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any, anything accursed. But the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no lamp, no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever, you see, on this new earth with new heavens above us. And that's all what Ezekiel is saying for him is to come. And for us, we've seen it in its inauguration, in its beginnings, since Jesus has come. And if you're a believer in Christ, it means you've been cleansed. It means you have a new heart and a new spirit, a new disposition within you. The old heart of stone has been taken out and the heart of flesh has been put in. And the very spirit of God is at work within you, causing you, enabling you to walk in his ways. And he'll walk you all the way to Eden and even better.
But I can't get away from those last verses in Ezekiel 36, which speak of this great multitude, this great multitude that's going to be with us. And you have to say, well, who, who are they going to be? Well, Hosea begins to speak of this great multitude, for instance. In Hosea, in chapter 1, verse 10, we read this. <clears throat> Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea. Now again, if you're reading Hosea, bells and whistles should start to go off. Because you could say, that was promised to Abraham. See, when God came to Abraham, he said, your descendants, your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Genesis 15, Genesis 22, and a ton of other places. Your descendants will be like the stars in the sky. In fact, it takes Abram out, you remember, and says, look up, count the stars. And in, in the language there, it's count the uncountable stars. And I don't know if you've ever kind of tried to count the grains of sand on the seashore or not. But, you know, write when you get work, because it's going to take some time. Uh, numerous. So Hosea begins to speak. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. So Isaiah begins to, to stretch out this vision for us. And he begins to say, there's, there's going to be a group of people that, that weren't considered the people, people of God, but a day will come when God will look at them and say, you are my children. And in fact, Hosea had kids, and he named them different names, and one of the names was not my people. And so, which is a bad name to have, I think. Um, and so in chapter 2, in verse uh, 23... In the middle of verse 23 begins, and I will have mercy on no mercy. He also had a kid named No Mercy. I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall, and he shall say, you are my God. And so he says, there's a people that aren't, that at this moment in time, weren't Israelites, weren't God's people. But he said, ah, a day will come when they will be. And all because of Jesus. For instance, Romans 4. The Apostle Paul is speaking about Abraham, and he's speaking about who this people is that is the people of God. And he says, well, they're all the people forgiven in verses 7 and 8 of Romans chapter 4. But then he goes on to say this in verse 9. Is this blessing then only for the uncircumcised or also for the... I'm sorry. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the circumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised that is, non-Israelites, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham before had before he was circumcised. That is, for the Jew and the Gentile who believe. 
that's the stars in the sky, sand in the seashore. That's this multitude. Paul's more explicit even than that in Galatians in chapter 3. When he writes this in verse 7, he says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Everyone who believes in Jesus. In the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, And you shall all the nations be blessed. And then those who are of the faith, who are of faith, are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And finally this. The Apostle Peter takes a big lasso and he sees Hosea back in the distant past and he lassoes Isaiah and he just pulls him up close in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9 and he simply writes this to us. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You Gentiles, you are the ones. Along with the believing Israelite, form together this great multitude. So how are we to respond? Well, very quickly we're to respond in humility. Because of course... God said he did this for his sake and not ours. When he says for his sake, of course, he doesn't mean that it wasn't for our benefit. It certainly was. But he said it wasn't because we deserved it that he did it. It was simply because he is marvelous. He is great. He is majestic. He did it because he is love, not because we are lovable. So we can't be proud of this. He did it. And of course we should praise him. But there's one last thing that I can't get away from in this passage. And this won't take long. It's in verse 37 of Ezekiel 36. Thus says the Lord God, This also will I let the house of Israel ask me to do for them. That's a marvelous expression. He's saying, Israel, you get to pray for this. I'm going to let you ask me for this. You see? Sort of like your mom saying to you, I'm going to let you ask me for another piece of chocolate cake. Now, what would you do? Well, I know what I would do. Please. Right? So this is what I'm going to let you ask. I'm going to let you ask. He says, I'm going to let you ask to increase their people like a flock. I'm going to ask you, I'm going to let you ask me to, to, to bring in a bunch of people the stars and the sand. I'm going to ask you, I'll let you ask to bring them. And I can't help but think about when Jesus was teaching us to pray. He said, pray like this. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. That is, Father, vindicate your name. Father, glorify your name. Don't let us profane your name. Let people know that you're the Lord. And the way that you said you're going to let us know that you're the Lord is by, is by cleansing people. And by giving them a new heart and a new spirit and putting your spirit within them so they can walk in your ways. Father, vindicate your name like that. Hallow your name like that. May your name be holy and revered because of, of that and people would know that that's who you are. Please, Father, do that. 
And you remember the time that Jesus was looking out over the people and he saw them as sheep without a shepherd and harassed. He had compassion upon them. And he turned to his disciples and he said, Pray earnestly. Pray earnestly, sincerely, passionately, zealously. Pray earnestly, he said, to the Lord of the harvest that he would send out laborers into the harvest. Why? Because the harvests were white. The harvests were ready. The multitude was there. And the night that Jesus was betrayed, he spent a great deal of time with his disciples talking about a number of things. He talked to them some about bearing fruit. Certainly the fruit that would come by the fruit of the Spirit, but also bearing fruit of the harvest. And it's always been interesting to me that it was on that night that Jesus chose to first say to his disciples, ask me anything. Ask me. It's almost as if he's saying to them, I'll let you ask me to bring forth the multitude. Now you see, when I take this whole Ezekiel passage all together and I see its glory, I have to ask myself, do I believe that? Do I embrace that? Do I believe myself because of the work of Christ to be cleansed and changed and indwelled by the Holy Spirit that I may walk in his ways? Yes. Do I believe, do I believe that there's a multitude? That God can do that in a multitude? And then he's simply saying to me, don't pray, ask me. And we have a, a marvelous situation here in Lawrence, Kansas. And we've always said, I don't need this anymore. We've always said that God's amazing enough and even humorous enough to change the whole world through Lawrence, Kansas. And I really believe that. I believe it. I've seen some of it because... I was with a, a church this past weekend and a pastor who was thanking me profusely for all the people in his church who, who were college students one day and have graduated and moved to his town and now are part of his church as elders and Sunday school teachers and worship leaders. His church is filled with people I know. And I know that that's happening throughout the Midwest and throughout the country. I know that as, as, as students come in here from other countries and go back to other countries, to their countries. And they come to know Christ and they're developed and discipled by many of you. And they go off. Then the multitude is being called and coming. Now we won't know this to glory, but the question for us is, do we believe that? Do we believe this word of God that the descendants of Abraham by faith be as many as the stars in the sky and the sand in the seashore? And God says, I'll let you ask me for that. You're sitting tomorrow morning and you don't know what to pray for in your life. Pray for that. Pray for our children. New hearts, new spirits that God would take out hearts of stone and put in a heart of flesh and put his spirit within them. Pray for your own children, people in your family. Pray for, pray for people in this community. Pray for students. Pray for people all over the city. Pray for people that you come in contact with and that you don't. But begin to pray together. And I believe we'll probably, if God is as gracious as he's been, give us opportunity to see glimpses of it. But even more so, we'll get into glory. And that Eden time around the tree of life will be wonderful. Let's pray. Father in heaven, 
Thank you, Lord Jesus, for vindicating the holy name of your Father. For you defeated all his enemies and ours. And you showed him to be great and worthy of our praise by what you have done by cleansing us, by giving us new lives, transforming us and putting your spirit within us. But we pray, and I do desire to pray earnestly, that your Father's name would be hallowed, be made holy, be vindicated by multitudes of people coming to know Christ, by coming to faith, that they may too know that he is the Lord God. So, Father, I pray that you would send out laborers, Lord Jesus. I ask that you would bring them to faith, to send your spirit upon them. Take out their heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. And that you would enable us to be a part of that. That's our heart's desire in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. As you do, I remind you that there are elders available to pray. Please take advantage of that. I remind you of our time on Wednesday evening. Um, for our dinner and uh, time together. The response to the benediction is, Christ died for me, hallelujah. Martin Luther once said that Christianity is a religion of personal pronouns. It isn't just that Christ died for sinners, which he did, but when one comes to faith, Christ died for me. And if that's the testimony of your life, what Ezekiel prophesied, has come true in you. And your response would be hallelujah. Please receive this as God's benediction. Now to him, who was able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before his glorious presence, and that with great joy. To only wise God and Savior Jesus Christ, to whom be glory, dominion, majesty, and power, both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, Christ died for me. Hallelujah.